0: You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. Uh, Tonight's reading comes from Exodus 25, verses 1 through 9. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and fine twine linen, goat's hair tanned, ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense stones and stones for setting for the ephod and for the breastplate and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture so you shall make it this is the word of the lord
1: our father we do confess that our minds have been distracted and dismayed uh, perhaps even in the next in the last uh, 45 minutes or so we have been considering other things. We have been worshiping other things. Uh, So, Father, we now pray that you would fix each eye, every uh, thought, all of our worship on the Son, on your Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. God, we pray that the words of our mouth, the meditation of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. And we pray that that would be true in the preaching of your word this evening. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Uh, My name is Nathan. If I haven't met you, I'm one of the pastors here and it is very, very good to be standing here in this pulpit again this week. It was really great last week to have a week off from study and preparation. Thanks, Clint. Uh, But the the privilege of getting to stand here each week and proclaim the excellencies of Christ, the truthfulness of God's Word to us is just like the best 40 minutes or so of my week. by the way, while Clint and I are the ones who study and prepare—oh yeah! Sorry, sorry, it's torch week, everybody. All right, uh, if you are a fourth through sixth grader and want to go talk about the tabernacle, uh, Caleb and Emily will lead you in doing that. Well, what I was going to say is, while well, Clint and I are the ones that prepare and uh, are doing the, doing the one that preaching here, we aren't just preaching at you uh, there's a real sense in which we are preaching for you, especially the members of our church. You have uh, given us this task to speak for you. We, we as Christchurch members, we own and we protect the doctrine of God and his gospel together. So, if you hear me saying something that you just particularly agree with, I want to keep encouraging you guys to just voice that affirmation verbally, uh, perhaps with an amen or a hallelujah or something. And, and in following Kyle Stevens' example when he preached for us a few months ago, I'm going to actually try to be more intentional in inviting that uh, from you. So feel free to be more vocal, and as a result, even emotionally interactive as we feast outright, as we feast together on God's Word. Well, the reason that I had uh, the week off last week is so that I could take my second son Caleb to Austin. I've decided that uh, every time one of my four sons reaches the fourth grade, uh, that I'm gonna take them to Austin for a University of Texas football game. Uh, this is mostly just a selfish, selfish venture on my part uh, to get to go to more Texas games. Uh, but uh, it's a good time for me to be able to spend three and a half days or so with each of my kids. Uh, here's the thing though. Uh, I lived in Austin for four years for college and then two years after college where Marcy and I helped plant a church there. Six years of my life in that wonderful city. But while well, I, still, I still know the, the restaurants and the coffee shops and the streets there, I didn't have to use Google Maps a whole lot uh, last weekend, uh, I felt like a tourist. And part of that is just because uh, it's changed a lot, Austin is changing a whole lot, but It was like a three and a half day vacation. It wasn't home. Home is my house and where Marcy was and where the rest of my kids were. Home is now where things are drier and they are spicier and there are mountains. Uh, Home is now Albuquerque, New Mexico. Uh, Home, amen. Uh, Yeah, home is Christchurch. It is with you all and I couldn't imagine like doing home or life anywhere else. Uh, well, much like we thought about chapter 23 of Exodus two weeks ago, chapter 25 is about God's people coming home to once again live with God. Glorian read just the initial intro to what is going to follow five chapters of God's instructions to Israel to build a sanctuary for his presence, to live with them. Then there's like a narrative break in chapters 32 through 34, and then picking back up in chapter 35 throughout the end of Exodus is then Israel actually doing and building this sanctuary according to the instructions that he gave them in 25 through 31. It's just like a repeat of all the things that they were supposed to do, and then throughout the rest of the book is then them doing it. Tonight we're going to just get from 25 through 27. We're going to take three chapters tonight, and then 28 through 31 next week. But these chapters can initially feel tedious. They can feel meaningless. If you have read through Exodus before and you saw these chapters coming, maybe you were hoping uh, that we would just skip these chapters. After all, that's exactly what the movie does in the Ten Commandments. It just, like, blows right through, essentially, like, the parting of the Red Sea to then the golden calf scene. Like, all of this stuff just gets skipped. Well, bad news for you. We ain't skipping it. Uh, But good news for you. Even though I'm not like, a super great preacher or anything, after tonight, I think you're going to really love these chapters. So let's do it. Amen! We're going to ask two questions of these three chapters tonight. Two questions. First, what was the tabernacle? And then secondly, why should I care? All right? Because I think that second question might be uh, more on the forefront of our minds as we read these chapters. But first of all, let's do some groundwork. What was the tabernacle? In chapter 19 of Exodus, we saw the presence of Yahweh uh, descend on Mount Sinai in the form of a cloud. There was like earthquaking and lightning and fire, and it was a terrible and a tremendous experience. It was awful in its original sense, like full of awe. It was an awful experience, an awesome experience experience for these people. The people are so glad that the God who brought them out of Egypt through power and might and all of the miraculous plagues, uh, he himself has come to live with them now outside of Egypt. He didn't just get them out of the land, now he intends to live with them. But they are rightly afraid for their lives in chapter 19 and then on and after the Ten Commandments. They are so glad, but they are terrified. God gives them very clear instructions for how they, the people, can live with him and how he could live with them without consuming them. There are, we saw in chapter 19, there are like concentric circles of who could approach the mountain and how close to the mountain. How, who then could go up the mountain and get to the very top of the mountain where the hot spot of God's presence was. But this is not where the people were meant to stay. They were to receive the law and then move on. God was to take them to, to the land which he had promised their father Abraham. And so now, as they traveled, God gives them the same pattern for how and where he would dwell with them. He gives them a mobile sinai, the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. Tabernacle literally just means a dwelling place. So this is a mobile tent. It is a mobile tent of concentric circles, uh, outlining who was allowed where, and as we'll see, for what purpose. This is a mobile Sinai of God meeting with his people. So in what Gloria Ann read, the first nine verses of chapter 25, Moses takes up a contribution for a whole lot of stuff. To make this tabernacle, and then to make the furniture and all the trappings and all the things that is going to go inside the tabernacle. And immediately, before there are any instructions, the people contribute gold and onyx and other precious stones. And this kind of language is the exact same language that we read about in Genesis 2 12. Gold and onyx and precious stones. Just like in Exodus 23, the author is giving us a hint right off the bat, right right as we're beginning this whole tabernacle scene, that this is Garden of Eden stuff. Along with lots of other creation themes throughout the rest of Exodus, next week we'll see that after all of the instructions for the tabernacle, what, 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 what finishes it off? In, verse, in chapter 31, the last thing that they are to do is to remember the Sabbath. They are to uh, remember the Sabbath and rest from this work of creating this tabernacle, just as God did in the first creation week. So just like Clint mentioned last week, it appears that there are lots of themes of recreation going on here. There are very specific instructions, very specific dimensions given, which can feel tedious to our modern ears. They can feel and seem arbitrary and unnecessary, but God is bringing order very. Structured order to a life and a world of chaos which surrounds his people, so with all of the so so what do we make of all of these instructions though, and all of the instructions of the tabernacle and then its smaller parts, interestingly, what comes first is not the instructions for the tabernacle right we might assume that God would give the instructions for the tabernacle. You're going to make the exterior stuff. I'm going to give you this big tent. And then after the fact, then I'll give you instructions for all the stuff to fill it with. But that's not what happens. Verses 10 through 22 are our first instructions here. And it describes the Ark of the Covenant. You you all, of course, know exactly what the Ark of the Covenant looks like after Indiana Jones found it. But this is a box made of acacia wood. It's made of acacia wood and then overlaid with gold. It's about three foot nine inches long by two foot four inches wide and tall. Not very huge. This box is uh, overlaid in gold. It has a lid on top, and this lid, the, the very word for lid, is where we get our word for atonement. The lid covers what's inside, it seals what's inside. It atones what's inside, and there are golden rings on the side that then golden poles are inserted through so that the priest can carry the Ark without touching it. But unlike the way that it's portrayed in Raiders of the Lost Ark, there is nothing inherently magical about this box, nothing inherently spiritual or powerful about the Ark. It was never used as a weapon. And in fact, unlike the movie, God's presence did not live inside of it. Certainly not like the movie, like, like creepy spirits and ghosts or something that live inside of the ark. Verse 21 tells them what is inside the ark. It tells them to put the testimony inside, which we'll later find out is the tablets of stone on which the 10 words, the 10 commandments were written. This is why it is called the ark of the covenant. It is the ark, the container of the law of the covenant. It's the ark of the covenant law. But God's presence cannot be contained in a box, not even in a big tent or a temple, like we heard read in our call to worship, as Solomon is considering, as the temple is being built. God is in the heavens, and he does all that he pleases. And yet, in Isaiah 66, God says, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Many other times, we see throughout the Old Testament, uh, that God is seated on his throne between the cherubim, these terrifying winged creatures that are also on the lid of the ark. And then three or four other times throughout the Old Testament, the ark itself is called the footstool, God's footstool. And so the ark is like an ancient king's footstool. When the ancient king would come into the uh, to the palace, and he would sit on his throne, and then put his feet up on the footstool, he was basically saying, court is now in session. I am now sitting over my people, and I am judging over them in righteousness. This is what the ark is. It is the footstool. The ark is the earthly connection to how and where God closely and then very nearly sits with his people. He reigns and rules over his people as their judge, and as their king he is not inside the box but the ark is the very reason for the tabernacle in the first place so it comes first the instructions for it lead off the whole list of instructions it's almost like designing and building like the fireplace or the hearth of your home first you know that the living room around the fireplace is going to be the place where the majority of your time is spent, where the majority of the, the warmth and the life of the house is spent. And so now that we've established what that's going to be like, then we can just go ahead and build that, the rest of the house around it. That's what's going on here. Okay, so next comes the table. This table, also of acacia and overlaid with gold, is three feet long. It's only about a foot and a half wide and then two and a half or two feet, three inches tall. Pretty short table. Much shorter than this, though a little bit deeper. On the table will be dishes of incense and bowls for the drink, to pour drink offerings on, as well as we read in verse 30 of chapter 25, you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly. What's this about? Well, in Leviticus 25, we learn that there will be 12 loaves of bread put on this table likely indicating that the 12 tribes of Israel, the people are now symbolically welcomed into a continual covenant meal of peace, always and ongoingly. The bread is to be replaced once a week. There is always food and drink for his people to be shared with their God. This is like just a straight continuation of what we saw happen at the end of chapter 24 last week, where there was a meal, a meal of peace, for the whole nation now, for their, with their holy God, though this meal is happening now just like a couple of feet and behind the curtain from where God's footstool is, from where his presence is. So next comes the instructions, which are for a golden lampstand. There's no wood on this one. It's just a solid gold lampstand, which is about 75 pounds worth of gold. Either this is a very dense gold, golden lampstand or it's pretty tall. Uh, we don't know exactly what it looks like, but maybe a golden lamp stand that's maybe, you know, about this big. It's a very big menorah. Literally, this is what the menorah comes from. The, the, uh, the, the shape and the, the, what, it, what, it, what it looks like from these instructions from chapter 25. As we'll find out at the end of chapter 27, the priests are to keep this lamp, these candles, burning always, round the clock, night and day. It could be... the reason for that is just because it's really dark inside the tabernacle and it just needs to be lit up for those who are entering it. It could be that this lampstand is meant to hearken back to a tree of life. Back to Genesis 1 and 2. It's just not altogether clear what the answers, though, for this golden lampstand are. Like, to answer our question, like, what's the point of the lampstand? We're not entirely sure. But as one commentator says, the fact that there is mystery may be precisely the point. What the lampstand represents is something God may or may not be pleased to reveal, and even if such significance is hidden from Israel, it has no bearing on how they are to behave. The lampstand is to be made, as he said, and the light is to keep, be kept burning. Basically, uh, verse, chapter, verse 40 of chapter 25, they're just told to obey and to make the lamp because that's what God wants and how he wants it. Our best course of action in reading these things is perhaps not to find all of the deep spiritual meaning in our life and like certain, like now insert my life into the tabernacle or something and bring application there, but just to bring application from here now into my life. And what that is, we're not quite sure yet, but God is good and trustworthy. So let's just make the lampstand. All right, now the tabernacle itself. This is all of chapter 26. For the first time ever in the history of Christchurch, I think we're going to show you an image. Look at that. I mean, weird. It's like, welcome to 2019. Uh, okay, so this is a scale model of the tabernacle compound that someone has made in Israel. It's sitting there all the time. Uh, we were looking at this before the service, and it looks like it could be like in Alamogordo or something. <laughs> like, uh, it's, very, it's pretty remarkable how similar the climate of Israel is two hours, but uh, the entire grounds of this thing is uh, surrounded by these drapes that are seven foot tall. Uh, they, they run one hundred and fifty feet on the long sides on the north and the south, and then seventy five feet on the east and the west and then the tent itself is a thirty by fifteen foot rectangle, which is called the holy place this, this rectangle. Holds uh, the table, the lampstand, and then adjoining, but then separated by a curtain, is then another 15 by 15 square. So altogether is a it's about 45 by 15 feet, uh, and in that 15 by 15 foot square is called the Most Holy Place, where the Ark of the Covenant sat behind a curtain. The tent's about 15 feet tall. It's built. Or it's covered by four layers of curtains or drapes. Uh, the first or the most innermost layer, the one that you would see if you walked in, the innermost layer of drapes would be blue or purple, perhaps to represent the heavens, the skies. And embroidered in those curtains, that innermost layer, would be tons of images of cherubim. And we just don't know what these are. The Bible just doesn't explain what a cherub is, by the way. That's what a cherub, cherub singular, cherubim, plural. Uh, but we just don't know what they are because it appears that the original readers just kind of knew. They just kind of had in, in their mind what these cherubim were. But they aren't just angels. They aren't just men walking around that have like robes and some wings or something. They are the heavenly guardians. In fact, the very first time that we read of the cherubim is where? Where's the first time in the Bible that we read or Uh, here of cherubim. It's in Genesis 3, right? The, The people, after they have rebelled against God and he has driven them from his presence away to the east, he puts cherubim to guard the tree of life that they may not eat of it any longer. And so, as you enter the tent, you are immediately meant to imagine yourself now walking into Eden. You are walking into the place where God dwells with his people, and outside that innermost layer of blue and purple would be a layer of goatskin. Who knows? Perhaps signifying the kinds of skin that Adam or Adam and Eve were clothed by God with, uh, or who knows? It could just be because goatskin is just really durable and tough. We don't have to necessarily uh, draw spiritual meaning from that. But outside of that, the third layer was then ram skin that was dyed red. Perhaps representing the blood sacrifices of Exodus 24 that we thought through last week, that God has covered his people in a blood covenant and atoned them in that way. And then on the outside, the fourth layer is some animal skin, uh, which is meant to protect the whole thing from the elements. Okay? So the colors, as you approach this thing, as you approach this thing, the, the color's is really bad on this screen right now. But you can kind of see on that the drapes coming coming here. These are blues and purples, and then there is lots of gold on the outside. This wash basin, the laver, which we'll get to next week, is solid gold. The, this, the altar, solid gold. It is magnificent as you enter into, out from outside of these outer drapes. These blues, purples, reds, the shimmering golds, the The hard angles, the hard right angles, the precise measurements, all of this is meant to not only lift the eyes, but it is meant to lift the imagination of these Israelites to the beauty of God. Even affirming the goodness of the Genesis 1 and 2 created world. All of this stuff is just made by stuff, right? It's just made from wood and gold and cloth and linen. Stuff that's created by God in the world. What God has created is good. And now, uh, God is recreating them, once again, now in order to dwell with his people. The tabernacle, and its later, more permanent version, called the temple, is what one author says, the world as it was meant to be. It is the powerful piece of testimony to God, the creator, a palace for the victorious king. So Israel is to look around, they are to look inside, they are to Uh, be near, and then summon the ideal world. Summon Eden in their imaginations. They are to summon a reality that is ideal and separate from just the mundane and bland desert which surrounded them, that they were wandering through. But now... Even in the midst of the mundanity, of the mundane and bland reality in which they were, God is recreating a life full of beautiful meaning, beautiful purpose, all because this is the place of his presence. These courtyards, and then the holy place, and then the most holy place, are increasing levels of holiness and sacredness, of set-apartness, of set-apart for a specific purpose. We'll think more of the implications of this week, of this next week, But there's just a reality of the tabernacle, which, stay with me on this, is kind of like a kitchen or a bathroom. Uh, A kitchen or a bathroom, I think we thought through this several months ago, a kitchen or a bathroom is made with a specific purpose in mind, isn't it? And so it'd be very weird, if not like just wrong even, for me to enter your house and like hop up on your kitchen counter with my shoes on and start walking around. Why? Because that kitchen counter is where food is prepared. In the same way, you wouldn't prepare a plate of food and then take it to the bathroom and eat it in there. That is weird. That room has a specific purpose, which food should not mix with. Even though that is also the room where you brush your teeth. Don't think about that too much. But uh, this is the place that God has set apart, has made holy, has made sacred. He has set it apart for a purpose to dwell to live with his people. And so, purity is uh, demanded. People don't just walk into this tabernacle. There There are rules. There are purity. You don't just walk around on someone's kitchen counter. There are norms. Now, one more element here that gets instruction in chapter 27 is the bronze altar. It's a seven and a half foot square. It's four and a half feet tall. It also is overlaid with gold. And as you walk through the outer curtains, you can't see the edge of this, but you'd walk through, kind of through the curtains, and then immediately, what dominates your vision and perhaps your imagination is this altar. You can see the tabernacle behind it, but this is the thing that is, just hits you right in your face. If you are walking into Eden, you are reminded of the daily promise that on the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Every day that each human chooses to listen to themselves rather than to listen to the wisdom of God, chooses to advance his or her kingdom over and against the kingdom of God, well, death awaits. And an Israelite immediately is reminded that he or she deserves to die. But God has instituted a sacrificial system in which an animal dies in the place of the people and receives their just punishment so that there might be forgiveness of sins, that there might be peaceful dwelling with God. This entire scene dominates the outer court so that through the sacrificial shedding of blood, then the priests then might enter the holy place. And then once a year, the high priest on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, can enter the most holy place and uh, make further sacrifice. On this day, the high priest would even sprinkle the Ark of the Covenant itself with blood. The footstool of God. The very throne of his victory now covered in blood so that the people might be made right and find forgiveness of sin all right, I, I can't take it any longer. I can no longer speak in riddles. If that's what the tabernacle is, then why should I care? Why should we care about any of this in Exodus 25 through 31? Well, it would do us very well to not lose our sense of the awfulness of God. An encounter with the living God actually ought to fill us with dread. I recently read Annie Dillard, who a few decades ago said this, on the whole, I do not find Christians outside of the catacombs sufficiently sensible of conditions. She's saying those who are not amongst the dead aren't aware of conditions. Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we so blithely invoke? Or, as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? The churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. It is madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews. I think she's right. When I, when I was looking at, when I was looking, I knew that the, the picture that we saw earlier, I knew that existed somewhere. So I started uh, googling it, and when I was googling it this week, I found a YouTube video. Uh, that was like a, uh, someone who was walking through with a camera uh, and like giving a video tour of the whole thing. It's like a 20-minute YouTube video. And I was sitting in Starbucks on a Thursday afternoon, last Thursday, uh, watching this video on my computer, and I started feeling like, I don't know if I should be watching this. <laughs> like, not just like somebody might see me watching this, and that's weird, uh, but like, I, I, I don't know that I should be watching this alone in an office somewhere. It just didn't feel right like the when the when the person who is doing the video like walks into the holy place like my I felt my pulse begin to raise I'm like looking around at the table and at the lampstand, and then i'm like i'm thinking, I hope the person doing this video like turns around and walks out, but then sure enough, it keeps walking like towards the curtain i'm like i I literally paused it and I was like should I close the window? (laughs) This feels almost blasphemous. I was thinking of Annie Dillard. Do we, do I have any, the foggiest idea of the power that I'm so blithely perhaps invoking here? My heart, even though it was like beating almost out of control, knew that uh, God's presence, his footstool, no longer resides in the ark. When I watched Raiders of the Lost Ark with my kids, we had a conversation, does God's, Even if they were to find the ark, is it now a dangerous thing? No, no, it's not. Not any longer. I knew that this thing was a model. Uh, It's like a 2019 version of the tabernacle. And even then, I am watching this in 2019 on a computer. So even if this was the real tabernacle or something, like, I don't know if I'd die or not, but it felt weird, almost blasphemous. I wasn't wearing a crash helmet. But here's the best part the experience of an awful and inapproachable God, he has invited his people not only to know him, not only to worship him, not only even to dwell with him, but to experience love from him, to dwell securely in a relationship of love to experience him as Father. The New Testament writers thought and wrote a lot about the tabernacle. In fact, one of the deepest reflections is actually not all that clear in our English Bibles. In John 1, the Gospel of John, John is setting up his Gospel with a prologue that is just jam packed with huge theology. And he says this in the first three verses. He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. There's so much incredible stuff here. We don't have time. If you want to go back and think through some of these verses, uh, we preach through John, and you can find a sermon from September of 2017 if you want to think and understand more on that. But then he goes on to say, and I don't think we have this next verse. In verse 14, John says, And the Word became flesh, and he dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Now, what we miss in our English Bibles is that John literally says, in the word became flesh, and he tabernacled among us. God himself takes on humanity, and he becomes the tabernacle. The tabernacle was meant to be mobile and move with the people, but this just like takes it to a whole new level, doesn't it? Like Jesus becomes this walking, talking, teaching, healing tabernacle, this giant tent compound, like walking around Judea. Unbelievable. And he encompasses all of it, not just like a tent. All of it. He encompasses the altar, the basin, the lampstand, the table of the showbread. He says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world, he says. He offers water that will cleanse and satisfy. He offers himself as a bloody and sacrificial substitute. And the throne of his victory in which he is lifted up and coronated as king of the world is the same place which gets covered with blood. Why? Well, for the same reason for the people in this day. That the people may be be made right and find forgiveness of sins and dwell with their God. Amen? This is good news. And I don't think we perhaps get the real goodness, the just universe exploding grandeur of the good news, unless we first understand this. In which we first understand one does not just walk into the tabernacle and live to tell about it. One needs a crash helmet to live with this God. And yet, through the cross of Christ, he has brought us near. Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the morning, and then they reject him, and they are pushed out. They are exiled away to the east. Well, it takes a careful reader, but in Exodus 27, verses 9 through 15, uh, God is giving the people the instructions for how they are to Each time they set up, it's interesting that we watched the video that we watched tonight of how these people live mobily in tents that can be taken down and reconstructed. This is exactly what Israel does. And each time they reconstruct the tent, they are not to just uh, pick a place and just haphazardly start building it. They are to orient it the same every single time. One direction facing north and south and east and west. I'll give you one guess. Which direction if you were to hazard a guess, do you think the opening of the tent is oriented toward? It's oriented toward the east every single time. They are to this is amazing. Uh, it is the open, the open way to the tent, the open way to where God is welcoming and beckoning exiled sinners to himself is to the east. He has exiled them away from his presence and then he is welcoming them, urging them, beckoning them to himself. It was that way millennia ago with Israel and it is today with you and me. God is welcoming sinners home to know him, to trust him. There is food on the table and the light is literally on 24 hours a day waiting for his children Maybe my favorite moment in any piece of literature is when Jewel the unicorn at the end of the last battle of the last book of the Chronicles of Narnia, he says this, he says he's stamping and like braying and he can barely get out any words, but he says, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I have been looking for all my life, though I never knew it until now. Knowing and dwelling with God, your maker, is the home that you have been looking for your whole life. You may just not have realized it until this moment. You may not even realize it today. And if that's the case, we are praying for you. That you would know and experience and believe what Augustine said many thousands of years ago, that God has made our heart restless until it finds its rest in Him, until it finds home in Him, in the peace and joy and security of life with a good and faithful Father. The tabernacle is urging us to leave the world out there of fighting for meaning and security and instead living in meaning and security with God through Christ by the power of the Spirit. Come to know and come to worship Yahweh. The triune God, who now fills us, his new tabernacle, his new temple, which he is building us all up into as his church. And this is exactly what 14 members are going to be doing this evening. Not all of them are here, but we have, we have affirmed 14 new members on Friday night at our member meeting. And they are saying that I do not want to be an isolated, useless brick, but I want to be built up into the very temple of God, his church. I want to be a useful part. And together as his new temple, then God fills his church with his Holy Spirit. It's no accident that the same fire that came down on Mount Sinai is exactly what is hovering above every Christian's head in Acts 2 that then comes inside and dwells in them. Not in a tent, not in a temple, but in his people, the very presence of God now living within us to guide us to energize us, to comfort us, to encourage us, to convict us, to shepherd us into greater godliness so that we might be little mobile temples, that we might be little tabernacles. You thought it was weird with Jesus, but this is exactly what he has done with you as well. You are a walking, talking tent, inhabiting the very presence of God, that you might proclaim the excellencies of the God that dwells within you. Because of the cross of Christ, when he defiantly pronounced his victory over sin and death, saying, It is finished. The curtain separating sinful humans from a sinless God was torn from top to bottom. Crash helmets no longer needed. No longer needed for those who know him in the peace and love and forgiveness of the cross. Last week in our profession of faith, we professed our faith through Hebrews 10. But hear this again from Hebrews 10 with new ears understanding what you know about the tabernacle, have your universe turned upside down afresh tonight. Therefore, brothers, sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. No matter the sin that you have partaken in this week, no matter the doubt, the anxiety, no matter what kind of week you have had, if you are trusting in the blood of Christ, brothers, sisters, draw near with a heart sprinkled clean, full of confident faith. Because of course, while God would not dwell with his people, In a mobile tent or even a semi-permanent tent forever, these were not meant to be the full and final home of God with his people. Uh, It is to the, the future home that we look, the home to which we hope, in which there is a new temple descending from heaven, a symbolic showing of God's presence fully and finally dwelling with his people forever in recreation. And this is our hope. The hope in which Jewel the Unicorn, at the end of the whole story, urges his fellow Narnians, almost seemingly, to follow him into the tabernacle, into the home of warmth, which God has created to live with us, his children. And he says, Narnians, come further up and further in. Christ Church, further up, further in, into confident dwelling with our God, into knowing him in peace and in love and, and experiencing him as father. This is the work of the Christian now, the work of our church for the rest of our days, further up and further in. Let's pray that it might be so. Oh God, we pray that we might behold your glory, that we might understand you to be an awful God, full, filling us with awe, that you are terrifying in glory and in radiant holiness. And yet, through it all, through our sin and our exile, you have Made away. You have called us home. You have called us to reconciliation through the blood of Christ, and now you desire to fill us, your people. May this be true. We pray that it might be true of some who have not been filled by the Spirit, who have not received reconciliation through the blood of Christ. We pray that you would do so, that you would bring new life, that you would create life where there is death. But God, we do pray through a deeper understanding of the tabernacle and through the tabernacle of Christ that we might know you and love you with our heart, soul, strength, and mind even more this week we pray. In Christ's name, amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ's Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.